Hello, this is Tahir Rafiq, and I'm very proud to be presenting my first ever podcast for Typeset CIC. Uh, we are a community bookshop based in Rotherham. If you'd like to learn more about us and what we do, please visit our website on typeset.space. I'm very proud to introduce my, my first ever guest. His name is Lucius Valiant, and he is just set to publish his first ever novel at the end of October. Uh, Lucius, would you like to start off by introducing yourself? Yes, I would love to. I feel like you've done a very good introduction already. But Thank you. yes, my name is Lucius, and I am the writer of Dark Roots, uh, which is coming out on the full moon on the 28th of October. And I'm super honored to be your first guest on the podcast. I didn't yeah. actually realize that was the case. So, yeah, so glad to be here. Um, it's, it's an honor to have you. Thank you. So um, I've grown up in Denmark most of my life. I moved to the UK when I was 17 and have lived here ever since. So at this point, I suppose I'm multinational. Okay. <laughs> I consider myself Danish and British. Right. Um, so that is like very briefly my life. I've lived in London for over a decade. I yeah. went to college there, went to art school, which looking back, I should probably have gone to business school instead. Yeah. Because I'm very naturally creative, but the whole sort of administrative and businessy side of things, yeah. like creatives, that is what I find more challenging. Um, but but that's basically been my my path and the past couple of years, I've lived on the Kentish coast in a spindly house, almost right on the seafront with my husband and two guinea pigs. Oh. So that, that's life currently. Okay. And uh, how long have you been writing? Well, I've actually, I, I was thinking about this early and I was trying to pinpoint an exact moment and I wasn't able to because I've been writing and storytelling in various forms all of my life hmm. uh, to whatever my ability was at the time. So I, I'm sure that my mom still has boxes of my early attempts at self-publishing, um, whether it was, you know, just drawings with little speech bubbles or misspelled words above them. So I've, I've been a storyteller since really early on. And I would also just love kind of gathering my cousins around on family occasions and kind of tell them horror stories. Uh, sometimes to the point that I would completely scare the, scare the living <laughs> shit out of them and they'd be horrified and they, they would be all like, anxious about me kind of getting them in a room and closing the door and forcing them to listen so <laughs> so that's that's always kind of been me I've always been this kind of storyteller but in various formats yeah so I've actually throughout my 20s as well done a lot of different things I've, I've played music I've uh, run a night nightclub event and just lots of different creative pies uh, that I've had my hands in. Yeah. Um, but writing has been probably the most consistent thing that I've always loved to do and that I've always wanted to do. And I suppose uh, one of my challenges in life is that I've always wanted to be a writer and I've always considered myself a writer, but I've also wanted all these other things. Yeah. And so, it, sorry, yeah. go ahead. Go ahead. So the ability to kind of narrow down and focus has taken me a long time. Um, but but I'm here now. I've completed my first novel, and and that's been quite an adventure. Excellent. And is horror a genre that you've always been drawn to, or do you like to do different genres as well? I think horror is very much my home turf. I would I would actually describe Dark Roots, my novel, as more of a dark fantasy because horror is. I feel like I've written with too much humor for it to be straight horror. Okay. Um, my story has a lot of horror tropes 
it has vampires, it has a werewolf, it has vampire hunters, it has ghosts, it has a lot of the tropes and, and, and themes and character types that you would find in horror. But I've written it with a lot of humor and a lot of irony in places. So I feel like I can't, I can't with a clear conscience, call it horror. Okay. So dark fantasy or urban fantasy is probably the, the kind of headline I would put it under. Uh, but it's got a lot of elements from horror in there. And it's definitely got some horrific scenes in it, too. <laughs> and can you tell us about what a bit about what inspired you to become a writer? Yeah. So, again, it kind of ties in with always wanting to tell stories and always having a really strong desire to create and to express something and to kind of take something that doesn't exist and put it out into the world. So that's always been what's motivated me. But I, I, I would actually point rather to uh, some specific writers that have always been sort of luminaries for me, are just just super inspiring. So that's obviously Stephen King, as we mentioned, yeah, and Rice has to get an honorary mention as well. Neil Gaiman, uh, Poppy C. Bright. So there's a number of writers that I would say have inspired me to to kind of feel like if I could write like that, you know, kind of reach into other people's minds and plant a story or a character that's so vivid yeah. and so intriguing. If I could do that. Oh, I would love to do that. That's wonderful. So, so I would say that that's it. Like the really great writers in my life, the way that their work has mattered to me. If I could do a fraction of that, I would be so satisfied. I would feel like I've kind of knocked it out of the park with my life's purpose. Wonderful. And can we, uh, let's let's get to your your book. Can you give us a, yeah. a bit of an outline of the plot for Dark Roots, please? Yes. So I'll I'll do my very best to do that okay. without any spoilers. Okay. And then, I'll preface that with saying that I've written the novel over the course of at least a decade. Yeah. It's taken a really long time to come into come together, and mm. I've written it in drips and drops and in, in bits and pieces throughout a whole decade. So it's been a super big challenge for me to actually piece it all together and and smooth it out in places and bring all the all the pieces into a coherent plot. But I managed to do it, and and essentially the plot is. Um, that the main character is a vampire hunter yeah. and he's actually one of my newer characters some of them have been with me for for maybe a decade some of them for longer than that um, but he's a, a relatively new character and I kind of had to to invent him or come up with him to find a new way into the story and create a plot that made sense so basically he's a vampire hunter and the first thing that happens in the first chapter is that his license his hunting license is suspended yeah. So it starts off with a really bad day for him. But surprisingly, a solicitor shows up with an almost irresistible job offer on the same day. Yeah. And despite it being somewhat suspicious timing, or just really auspicious, depending on how you look at it, he accepts and he heads off to London to help um, Lyrica Hartenbrook with an unspecified vampire problem. And that's sort yeah. of when the whole story really kicks off. It's almost like that is the cork coming off the bottle and all these really eccentric characters and, and all these int intense and interesting events start unfolding from that point onwards. Yeah. So, so that's how it starts. And there's a whole really big cast of, of characters. Um, a lot of them belong to the same family, the Thornhill family. And mm -hmm. the whole book and the whole series is actually very much tied to that family and their history um so some of the the novel is set in the present but there are also quite significant chunks of it that are set during the victorian era 
and are told by, I would say, secondary point of view character, Lyrica Hasenbrook. She kind of shares the story of her life and the events that led up to her own tragic death slash transformation. Yeah. Um, and essentially, she is a vampire, and okay. she has several other family members that are also vampires, as it turns out. Um, and, and she has quite a story to tell. And, wow. and um, basically, it turns out towards, I would say, about two thirds into the story that some of the, a lot of the things and, and events and, and, and let's say old friends from the past are not quite as buried as she thinks they are. Yeah, And so there's a whole, almost like a, another plot that kicks off at that point in the story. So it's almost like, like these dominoes that, yeah. that kind of fall and, and events that take place both in the present and in the past and that culminate towards, in, I would say, in the last third of the story. Wow. So, so that's, that's, that's in, very, in, in very brief without giving too much away, because I, I would this... love for people to be surprised um, when they read it. I was surprised when I wrote it. Uh, it's yeah. been that kind of story and that kind of process, because I'm very much not a plotter. Yeah. I, I really think going forward, because I really, now that I've finished one book, I know that I can do more. Right. Um, but I'm going to be more organized and more, a little bit more strategic, because there's definitely been uh, periods of, of places where I've kind of fallen yeah. into a dead end and kind of trying to find my way out. But it's been so much fun writing that way, where you don't know the story and you don't know what's going to happen. And you yeah. just kind of follow this this mystical, magical trail into the mist and just you, hope that, that it you, actually goes somewhere. Do, do you feel that the story takes on a life of its own? Oh, yeah, very much so. The characters are very real. Very, yeah. They have their own very forceful, very sort of lively personalities. I've not been able to control them. And that's <laughs> actually, I think, part of why I was almost nervous to talk about them yeah. because I feel like I would have to defend why the story is as it is or why the characters say make the choices that they make and I, I really cannot do that yeah. I, I don't feel really that they are something that I came up with I feel like I found them I found the story and I found these characters yeah and, and it's been that kind of experience that's amazing can you can you tell us a bit about the the main character of your novel Oh, yes. So the main character of the novel is called Harlan Fawn. And he, is, as I mentioned, is a vampire hunter. And when the story starts, he's in his late 20s. I've chosen specifically 27 because of a number of interesting things that happen at 27. We all probably know the 27 Club is when a lot of musicians and celebrities have historically died under yeah. tragic circumstances. Yeah. So that is a significant um, connotation. Um, it, it's not men mentioned explicitly in the novel, but it's something that that has meaning. There's also the fact that that's really the time when our frontal lobes uh, kind of fuse and the brain is finished developing. So up to that point, your brain is actually way more flexible. And there's a lot of inability to, for example, foresee the consequences of your actions. And he's right on the precipice between that sort of arrogance of youth and maturity enough to really know what you're doing and know yourself yeah so he's kind of right right on that cusp i would say yeah. um and also 27 is when you have your mercury return in astrology yeah. so I, I write about you know all these um supernatural characters but i've also got a real interest in the occult yeah. and in everything from paranormal uh phenomena to uh psychic abilities and 
and fortune telling, all these things are, are really deep interests of mine. So I've kind of put that significance or that um, subtle hint into his age as well. Um, and he's a vampire hunter. He's very, very proud of what he does. He's very good at what he does. What he doesn't realize, but what the reader will probably recognize pretty early on, is that he doesn't really have a life outside of that. It is his entire life. And without, um, he doesn't really know how this happened in detail, but his family, or at least that's what he seems to remember, were killed by vampires when he was really young. And um, he's basically been raised by the vampire hunter that saved him from that. And therefore his entire life has kind of been aimed towards becoming this instrument, this hunter. Um, so basically he he's fantastic at what he does, but he's not necessarily uh, very grounded otherwise. Um, all his friends are vampire hunters, you know, his entire life and his focus is on that, which yeah. kind of means maybe that that he's kind of like very narrowly focused. Um, and that's for better and and that's definitely something that comes into play in the story when he actually encounters a lot of vampires and has to revise some of his views, perhaps. Okay. Um, so yeah, that's that's the main character. Sounds amazing. Sounds amazing. Uh, can you, without giving too much too many spoilers away, can you tell us a little bit about some of the secondary characters and what their interaction or relation is with Harvey Thorn? Yes, so there's actually a very big cast of secondary characters, yeah. and it's kind of sprawling. Um, yeah. So I feel like I should almost present them in order of appearance, mm -hmm. and I'll obviously I'll skip a lot of minor characters because otherwise it would we would be here all evening, <laughs> and much as as that would be fun to do, it might be awesome. Yeah. So <laughs> I'll, I'll skip some of the relatively minor characters, but the the first sort of important, really important, supportive character is Eli Romerstadt, who is Harlan's, essentially his father, not officially, but he's the man who raised him, also a vampire hunter. He also happens to be a werewolf, okay. and, but he's still able to be part of uh, the society of vampire hunters that, that all the vampire hunters in the story are part of. Uh, and that's because werewolves are very different from vampires, for example. A vampire could never join the society, but werewolves can. They're only monsters on the full moon, and the rest of the time, they're human. Yeah. Uh, so basically, there's that loophole that, that he occupies. Um, but he's quite an eccentric character in his own right, um, because he, as a, as a werewolf, he lives longer than humans. He is not immortal. He, he is not um, someone who cannot be wounded. He is not impervious to, to things, but he has nevertheless lived for maybe a hundred years. He looks about 50 at this point, um, but he's, he's lived a long time and has seen a lot of history. Um, I'm still hoping that his backstory will unfold in one of the latest, one of the later books that I'm hoping to write, yeah. um, because there's a lot of things that are hidden. Um, I have the impression that he's German, um, but he lives in Scotland at this yeah. point in time. I think he has a rather tragic history and it sort of hints it that he had a wife and a, and a child that died uh, under tragic circumstances as well. So there's something going on there as well that I would love to discover. Uh, but he essentially um, is also the voice of reason and caution at several points throughout the novel. He warns Harlan of this fantastic job opportunity that, that shows up. And so, you know, he put, he's the one that points out all the all the sort of holes, all the inconsistencies in that opportunity. But in the end, obviously, his his words are swept aside and, and they are not able to to have an effect. But he he at least attempts. He's that kind of father figure and essentially Harlan's only family as such. 
Right. So he's a very important figure. I would also say the Van Helsing Society, as it's called, which is the Society of Vampire Hunters, that's almost, it's an institution, but it's almost a character in itself. And certainly it's something that for Holland is almost like his family. It's what he, it's way more than career for him. It's its his calling, his purpose, his entire social life, everything for him is tied up in that. Um, so that's almost a character in itself as well. And there are some important friendships that he has within that as well. And also some some rivalries and some 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 let's say not enemies quite, but certainly some some troublesome characters involved in that. Um, but I'm not gonna go into them in detail because that's some other characters that we need to get to. And the the next one that is really important is Lyrica Hartenbrook. So she is the proprietor and owner of Fornhill Mansion. Um and and she's a vampire, it turns out. I might as well reveal that. It's revealed relatively early on. And and she has essentially invited him to Fornhill Mansion because she wants him to know her story. And the reasons for that, uh, I'm not going to go into. That's I, I will leave that as a surprise. Okay. Um, but she has a specific reason for wanting to share her story with him and also with a photographer that she has invited called Sebastian Rose. And and he doesn't know anything about the supernatural or the occult. He is essentially a civilian and he's kind of drawn into this. And he kind of gets in the way several times throughout the novel through his lack of experience and, and knowledge. And kind of he, he is responsible for quite a few blunders that happen. And that that makes him instrumental for the plot as well. Yeah. So he's one of the few sort of he's I would actually say he's the only normal character that appears in the novel. Okay. Is he sort of a comic relief? Sort of, yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I don't think he realizes himself. I would actually say a lot of the characters take themselves quite seriously. Yeah. But it's seen, I, I believe it's seen from Harlan's perspective that, that it makes it fun to observe, for example, some of the vampire characters. Yeah. Because some of them might be several hundred years old and they don't realize how comical their actions or their opinions or their way of speaking might seem from the outside. Yeah. That's really why I needed a contemporary character to be the POV character so that we, yeah. could, we could see that. Otherwise, it's just kind of the vampire in his or her own mind explaining things. And, and that wouldn't be quite as funny. Um, but but let me get to a few other characters. Okay. Um, so the Thornhill family are quite... Um, they, they, they are basically a, a cast of really eccentric beings so there's Lyrica and she's like I mentioned her name is Hartenberg she is not directly um, part of the family but she still happens to be the one that resides in the mansion um, it's mostly her cousins that are the problems let's say and that are kind of the vortex of the catastrophe that sucks her into let's say the dark side of of life um, in the Victorian era and that's basically that's what her story is it's her um kind of being against her will but inevitably kind of drawn into this vortex that's opened let's say by her cousin Benedict um right. he's he's the heir to the Thornhill um mansion and fortune and and the family business they're essentially part of the nouveau riche they're not uh they're not aristocrats but they sort of they have the wealth to get away with a lot of things that most people in the Victorian era really could only dream of yeah there's his sister as well, Octavia, who comes to, she's a very passive character in this book, but she plays a really important role towards the end as well. She becomes a pawn almost in in a rivalry, in a showdown uh, between old enemies. 
then I should also mention um, probably the, the greatest adversary in the novel, um, another vampire called Gabriel Graves, and he's a vampire undertaker. Um, okay. um, he is essentially the maker of all the Thornhill vampires when when they become vampires. He's the one responsible. Um, and he is the oldest vampire that we encounter in the novel. And he's the, old, the oldest character that I have. So he's from the 1600s, from from the Black Death, essentially. That's where he, he comes from. And that's when his family established their fortune as undertakers. Yeah. Um, he has a really interesting story, too, which I'm actually working on now. It's the second book in in the Thornhill Vampire Chronicles. And it's called Deep Graves, which is also the name of his undertaker business. Wow. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm can can you tell us a bit about what inspired the story of Dark Cruises? Is it based on on a real place, a real story? It is not based on anything real, but um, it is. I would say very much. In, there's lots of different inspirations that have gone into it. A lot of it is actually my very early love of Gothic literature. Things like Frankenstein's monster, Jekyll and Hyde, Dracula. I read those stories when I was quite young. I would say like around ten or eleven. Yeah. Um, so basically, as soon as I could read in English, those are the books that I would find in the library and read. Yeah. And that really did something for me. I just I love the language and the kind of gloomy texture of that kind of writing. So that's definitely inspired me a lot and, and made me want to write in a similar setting um, with similar type of, of characters. Like we know all the, know these kind of iconic. We had these iconic images of of this like female ghost you know in the long flowing dress and you know the haunted house kind of on top of a hill all these very iconic images and i want to use a lot of that um so i feel like that's been very inspirational and then like i mentioned that certain writers whose writing uh see has seemed to me so magical and powerful that i've always wanted to to write something that had that kind of impact or that kind of flavor um but also there is something real that that underpins it and that is the setting that is something that's real. Um, basically, the story Thornhill Mansion is perched on on Swain's Lane above Highgate Cemetery West, yeah. uh, which is a very famous cemetery in London, a very famous Victorian cemetery. Yeah. So basically, in my cosmology, Thornhill Mansion is built at the same time as the cemetery, and there's a deep connection between those two places. So yeah. if you go to Highgate, you won't see Thornhill Mansion above the cemetery, but you could easily imagine that it's there. Yeah. And so I kind of, I, I love that the setting is real and Highgate in itself has a really, really interesting and very weird history. Um, everything from actually it's older history. It has a lot of old ghost stories attached to it, but it also has newer ones. It has the the urban legend of the Highgate vampire. Yeah. And and that basically is a is a, a number of events or a, a, almost like a an avalanche of events that happened in the 70s when people became convinced that an actual vampire was stalking Highgate Cemetery and its surroundings. And it escalated in the media to the point that would-be vampire hunters and occultists basically flocked to the cemetery with stakes <laughs> and, and torches. Wow. And they went haunting through the cemetery, which was really derelict at, at the time. And there weren't any fences or walls around it like you'd see today. So basically, that is a very real story. And that's something that I I had at the back of my mind as well when I wrote it. Yeah. But a lot of the characters and a lot of the 
the kind of themes in it already existed in my mind by the time I first said foot in Highgate, which was actually by accident when I lived nearby in Kinnish Town. I would go for walks in the evening. I've done that everywhere that I've lived. I always usually just, you know, have my headphones in, go and listen to music, go and, and imagine daydream, you know, just go and go and think. And just one evening I walked up round round a corner of a normal part of London and then I'm suddenly standing at the foot of Highgate Cemetery and there's two sides to it, east and west. And there's this really steep lane called Swain's Lane uh, going up the middle. And there's also something called Holly Village at the bottom. That's where I've, I've actually placed Gabriel Graves' Undertaker business in, in the story. But that is, is basically like this little gothic-y fairy ta- tale type village. That's what it looks like. It's people's houses, but it's it's basically private property. You can't go in there. But the cemetery itself just had this really spooky, airy energy to it just like this really magical atmosphere and i went home and i read about it just on wikipedia and so on and i just found out about the whole high gear vampire situation and that just obviously when you're creative or you, and you're curious and you have an interest in the occult that really sets your imagination going it's really really inspiring and exciting so so basically i've woven that that real story if you will into my story so so that's part of the inspiration as well Wow. And and I've actually I'm working on on a novella as well called Fanged Panic that is set in the seventies and that is specifically surrounding this, um, but but in in dark roots it's only kind of hinted at it's in the background. Yeah, I, I, I will mention. Oh, sorry, now that we're at this, I have to mention yeah. um, that actually um, a specific uh, friend of mine has warned me off from from writing anything about the Highgate Vampire which was really, really weird, actually warned me publicly because uh, okay. I, I shared something, a reel on Facebook, you know, saying that um, something like, you know, I, I'm in Highgate Cemetery right now and it's one of the settings in my story. And, you know, just the whole vi- Highgate vampire phenomena is such an interesting source of inspiration. Something like, I can't remember exactly what I said. And then, and then he wrote something like, it's ancient history. You should probably leave it alone. And and I was like, if it's ancient history, what you know, you know, why not take some inspiration from it? And it was kind of like, I think the whole thing is cursed. You should probably just back off. And and it's really interesting that the Highgate vampire phenomenon has people like reacting in a weird way to this day. Um, even the the kind of guided tours that they did at the cemetery for a long time, they wouldn't mention it out of fear, probably that people would, I don't know, start searching the cemetery again, breaking into the tomb, because actually a lot of vandalism happened um, in the 70s because of this, because of the vampire craze. Um, But yeah, anyway, that just made me even more interested. Yeah, (laughs) it's really weird to think of the 1970s as ancient history, because for me, that's just, just, it's just very recent, because I was born in the 1960s, so. So, yeah, and, and it, yeah, you know, it's it's not. I don't even consider that long ago. No. I consider it, you know, that's like most so many people alive now can ex- remember that or experience that, and just the fact that something so outlandish could happen in relatively recent history. Yeah, I think that's super fascinating, and I I love that. I love when kind of reality. It's almost like a, a story like that is an example of the fantastical spilling over into the popular imagination, into the, into the realm of the real. And I just, I love that. Not everyone does, not everyone's cup of tea, but I love that. And can you tell me a bit about uh, what you find most difficult about the writing process? 
Oh yes, I can definitely tell you what I found most difficult and infuriating was the editing process. Mm. And I think it might be different if I hadn't written the book spaced out over a decade. So the editing was a real challenge. Like I said, just kind of piecing the different bits together, making it into a plot because I hadn't thought out the plot ahead of time. I thought it out almost retroactively. And so I had to go back and, and change a lot of things, kind of planned a lot of hints and kind of put, like draw forward a lot of things that were kind of latent or hidden in the writing. And also kind of even out the language in places so that the tone was more consistent. Um, so, so the editing process was really, really frustrating and really painstaking. Um, but also, I think it was a real important learning curve for me to do do the editing, because I think it's made me a lot, <laughs> very much a better writer. Um, I realized how many kind of redundancies I could take out, how much I could kind of actually prune, almost like cutting layers into hair. So it's not just hanging like a big heavy blob, but it actually has a shape to it and has movement. And and I think I learned a lot from doing the editing, but I hated it. And is there, uh, can you tell me a bit about uh, part of the writing process that you really enjoyed? Yeah, um, so I love the, the feeling of kind of chasing something, of, of kind of following. It, I almost felt like I had this handheld camera and I was running after these characters into this mysterious world to kind of record what they were doing and what was happening. And that was just a fr really thrilling and interesting experience. For me, something like that is is the most exciting thing that you that you could be doing. You know, much more exciting than kind of consuming entertainment, like watching a movie or something. It's like you are right in the the action of it, and also the feeling of creating something that didn't exist before. I think that is just an absolute thrill. I almost get goosebumps just thinking about that. Um, and that's an experience that I've always loved. And I've I've kind of had that experience in various forms from creating music and writing that but to writing to writing fiction. It, it's the same kind of feel that that comes from that. The, the kind of feeling of, oh my God, I've got hold of something that didn't exist. And and no one else has found this story first. I found it. And now I just hope that I can do justice. So yeah, it also feels like a huge responsibility to find a story like that. And to kind of know that I have to write it down because no one else knows about it. No one else has found it. I think um, in Stephen King's book on, on writing, uh, his memoir, but he also talks about the writing craft. He describes finding fossils in the ground, that that's basically what writing is. And, yeah. you them. and I very much feel like that's how it is. You this find a story more than you come up with it. And obviously that there's parts of it that you come up with or details that you come up with. But on the whole, you find this big fossil in the ground and you have to excavate it. And it's really exciting to, to kind of discover what is this fossil? Oh my God, it's something, you know, prehistoric with big fangs. Like that's exciting. Like, so, yeah, yeah this, the, this, the story is something that has existed and has always existed. And you're, yes. you're the one privileged to discover it. That's how I that's how I felt. And I, I also have really had the feeling of I can really hope that I can do this this story and these characters justice. And I just have to do the, the best that I can because otherwise no one else is gonna come along and do it. Maybe in a hundred years or in you know, but but if that story has to be written now, I have to do it. And and so I've also really felt the kind the kind of weight of that. Mm -hmm. Um and I actually, um, I wasn't necessarily going to mention this, but I actually wrote a first iteration of the story about over a decade ago when I was like in my late teens, when I was in yeah. college. 
um, over the course of about a year and a half. Um, and and it just didn't work out. I could I knew the second I'd finished the story that I had not done it justice. And I actually, I've never been able to really look at it again. It was way too disjointed. There was absolutely no plot. Um, it, it just wasn't coherent. And I think I just, it was the prospect of kind of editing it and rewriting it was just too big for me at the time. I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. It was too much of a responsibility and I just couldn't handle it. Uh, it actually made me super depressed for a while, but oh. basically I've done it now, but it's taken a really long time to kind of bring this story out. Um, and I've definitely made some changes to it. Like, like I mentioned, one of the changes is Harlan as the POV character. Um, I needed a contemporary character to tell the story. Can you please tell me if there are any aspects of this story based on real experiences of people from your own life? Actually, no. Apart from the setting in Highgate and the, the whole backstory of the area, uh, having woven those details in, there's nothing at all in, in the novel or in any of the characters that are based on real events or real people. Um, I have always found the writing advice of write what you know to be completely obnoxious and insufficient <laughs> because I want to write about characters that don't exist and things that, that haven't happened in the tangible real world sense that most people mean when they say real. So I like the idea of really taking something from the astral plane, if you will, and, and making it real. Oh. So, um, so yeah, the, the only overlap is that very tenuous connection of the setting. Yeah. Can you tell me, uh, oh, oh, this, uh, this is uh, diverging from the subject matter a little bit. If you could spend a lunch hour with anyone, living or dead, who would that be? Oh, in the context of this interview, I would definitely have to say Anne Rice okay. because of how she has inspired me. I would love to perform an act of necromancy and summon her and just have lunch and have a chat and and just hear whatever she, she had to say. I think she is really one of the writers that that really never compromised. And I love that. Uh, never pandered to anyone, wrote what she wanted to write and really did something with the whole vampire archetype that hadn't been done by anyone. She did what Bram Stoker did, but she, I would say, did it better. So I love that. Yeah. And, so, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I just said, yeah, so that would definitely be my choice. Fantastic. And can you tell me, um, how do you prepare for a day of writing? Is there a specific time that you write or do you write as and when the inspiration comes? So for me, I found that what works really well, what works best is the shorter a gap between rolling out of bed to me being in the process of writing. It's almost like the quicker I can get into that world, the better, because there's no time for other distractions or, or responsibilities or chores or thoughts to come in and kind of interfere and kind of take my energy for the day or take kind of the, the juice out of me for the day. So I really prefer to, to do it as the first thing. It falls into that whole, you know, do the most important thing first. So I, I found that just really tunneling into the writing as soon as possible. Sometimes I don't even, you know, get changed. I'm just in my, in my jammies in front of the computer uh, or with my dictaphone um, because that's part of the, the reason I was able to actually finish the, the book when I was that I figured out how to dictate parts of it. 
And that has been such a discovery for me. But basically, the, the, the smaller the gap between waking to being in the fictional world, the better, at least in my experience. Um, and there's no particular rituals that I have to go through, no particular setting. I'm the kind of writer that can sit in that really crowded, noisy cafe with like screeching children and and people having conversations and things like that. And I can just sit there completely immersed in what I'm doing. I can also go around in, in the park with the dictaphone and just basically talk to myself, tell myself the story, um, kind of almost like doing voice. People probably think I'm totally schizophrenic or something. Um, but basically I have the, uh, I can do that, but I can also just sit in my, in my study and just type away. So, so I can kind of switch between the settings quite easily. Um, I can even type on, on the boss or on my, on my phone sometimes if there's, but that's mostly like details, things that I want to add in later on. Um, but, but there's no particular ritual or setting that I must have no particular, I don't know, food that I have to have. Um, I like to put on a scented candle, usually Halloween candles, um, and usually kind of spooky ambient music in the background as well. I love that. Um, but that's really, that's really it. Okay. And finally, could you give me an insight into, well, without getting, getting into too many spoilers, can you give me an insight into the future of the Thornhill Vampire Chronicles? Uh, yeah, I couldn't give you spoilers even if I wanted to because I don't really know everything that's going to happen. But I have a feeling that it's a series that's gonna it's gonna go on for maybe a, around six books, I think. And what I can tell you for sure is that not every book has the same POV character, so we are going to get different stories from different perspectives, all kind of loosely attached to the Fawnhill uh, estate and the Fawnhill vampires. So that's essentially uh, the what ties it together in a series. But there's not one main character that's going to be consistent throughout. And there's not one, even one time in history that's going to be completely consistent. Um, I am, like I said, I'm, I'm working on book two, and that's called Deep Graves. And that's told from Gabriel Graves' perspective, who's the main antagonist in Deep in Dark Roots. So, so he has a very, very different perspective on things than Harlan does, uh, because he's, like I said, from the 1600s. He grew up during the Great Plague, and and he, he's from a totally different world in that sense. And he has very, he has different priorities, and he has a different, um, a different ruthlessness about him as well. So, so he's a very different character, and he doesn't have the same humor as Harlan, or the same irony. Um, so, so it'll be really interesting, I think, to kind of see things from his perspective and to kind of go into his backstory as well. So, so I think each book in the in the series is going to be very self-contained as well and very, very different from each other. Uh, but together, they're going to kind of going to form a coherent, a coherent cosmology or a coherent saga. And I think definitely the last book in the story is going to wrap up a lot of loose ends and it's probably going to be told from Harlan's perspective as well. I think he's probably going to be the POV character in, in maybe half of them or so. So, yeah, that's the future of the of the series. Wow. wow. That sounds really amazing. I'm so so happy you could join us. I'm really looking forward oh, to the book. Um, yeah. So am I. <laughs> So am I. I'm, I'm nervous and anxious and excited to finally get it out into the world and to kind of see see how it's received. I had no idea. Yeah. I don't think anyone apart from me has read it from one end to the other. So, yes. I'm really looking forward to, to reading it. So thank I you. Just, just want to thank you so much for, for, for joining me for this podcast and being a really lovely guest. And I'm really, yeah, I'm really happy with how this, how this has gone for my first ever podcast.
Oh, thank, thank you so much. I'm so honored to be the first guest. Thank you. So, um, yeah, so all, all the best. And I'm, I'll, I'll look forward to getting my copy very soon. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Speak thank soon. You. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Today's podcast was brought to you by Typeset CIC, community bookshop and co-working space. Visit our website at typeset.space. Podcast produced and presented by Tahir Rafiq. My special guest today was Lucius Valent. Music by Darren Curtis at darrencurtis.com. Music promoted by chosik.com. Music licensing by creativecommons.org.